0: started, all three of us or whatever it is. I think the religious art scared everybody off in the the new books. So take a look at your new books. Everybody have one? The Story of Hope book? If you don't, they're over here. And if you take a look at page 4 in the Story of Hope book, I'm not going to read all five of those paragraphs, but there are just uh, some statistics in there about the Bible that some would not know. And if you're going through this with somebody or with a small group, which is the idea for us to have gone through it and then for you to have at least a resource that you could use with another person or persons and those people that you're going through it with may not know left side first paragraph that the Bible has 66 books that were written over a period of more than 1500 years and 40 different authors and then if you look at that next uh, paragraph contains more than 500 stories and nearly 3000 characters so, in the Bible, you have this uh, diversity. The amazing part of that diversity, though, is that it comes together in a unity, which signifies that behind all that the human authors were doing was one ultimate author guiding the entire thing, namely, namely God. You would not be able to get uh, five people in a room to agree at, that are contemporary at the same time, let alone people over 1,500 years, 40 different authors. Uh, uh, to agree on a message, and yet that's what you find in in the Bible. So uh, some remarkable things in this remarkable book that we're going to go through over the next uh, five weeks together, counting today. We only have five weeks left, so we have to hustle. Um, uh, Next week we don't meet because it is spring break. So no meeting next week, two weeks from today. Then we will have four more weeks to go, and we'll try to plow through The uh, 40 lessons, 4 0. So we're not going to be able to do them justice, but we'll do the best that we can. Turn to page 7 then, in your Story of Hope books. Do you guys have the Story of Hope book? Uh, Okay. Page 7, and you see the map. So you want to start out by giving just a general idea of where the events that the Bible is going to talk about took place. And often known as the Holy Land, uh, or in Bible times, known as Canaan or, or Palestine. So the Bible's story of hope is, it says in the blue there, a true story of real people, places, and events. They occurred in real earth time and earth space. Center stage was the area of the Middle East that's illustrated here. We refer to it as the Holy Land in Bible times called Canaan and then later Palestine relatively small, about 150 miles north to south, 75 miles east to west, but, uh, that, but events that took place here many centuries ago still give us hope today. So that is then also what we would know as Israel, uh, as most of you know. Now, the way it's measured there, 75 miles um, east to west, but modern-day Israel, is actually much narrower than that. There are spots in modern-day Israel where it's less than 20 miles miles wide. And and then here, if you turn to the next couple of pages, 8 and 9, you have not just then Canaan, Palestine, Israel, but you have the larger Middle East and the ancient Near East that surrounds it. So you see on page 8 there, In the middle of the page, you have that rectangle. That's what we just looked at on the previous page. That is Palestine, Canaan, Israel. But then surrounding it is the Mediterranean uh, to uh, to the west. And then you've got Egypt to the the south. And then as you go go east, you see Babylon over on page 9. Chaldea, Persia, Nineveh. Some of these places you've heard up at the top of page 9, Mount Ararat. Uh, So these are, they've they've, uh, identified a few spots that become important in the the biblical story. Ararat is where uh, Noah's Ark comes to to rest. Uh, The right side of page 8, Haran, up at the top there. That's a, a stop on the journey of Abraham, as we're, we're going to see. Uh, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, as you read the opening uh, chapters of Genesis and the Garden of Eden, it actually mentions the Tigris and Euphrates uh, there. Um, and, of course, Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. But also, this is where the Tower of Babel uh, occurred. And you see that in the middle of of page 9 middle of page 9 toward kind of toward the bottom the city of Ur and this is where Abraham originated from so Abraham comes out of Ur and then he travels through Haran which is to the top left over on page 8 and then ultimately to the land that that God gave him into his progeny so Those are all of those uh, spots that you're going to see as we go through the Bible story. Now, I want to hand out a couple of maps that show you that area today. Yeah, here they are. Okay, I got them. You guys were worried, so was I. Thank you, sir. Just uh, give everybody one of those, please. Thank you, sir. So you take a look on the one side. On both sides, you've got a different map. And the first one I want you to look at is the modern political map of Israel and surroundings. So this is the way Israel looks now with its surroundings, as opposed to the way it looked in the ancient Near East with its, its surroundings. So we're just quickly going to go through, you've got ten... Of places marked on here it's not a quiz for you to be able to identify them but I'm going to go through and tell you what numbers to put in that rectangular box on the left side at the top where it says Lebanon you guys see that so in the map itself at the very top of the map in beige brown you see the 10 that is Lebanon And then uh, number nine, the next one, is Syria. And that's up at the top right in green. This is modern-day Lebanon, modern-day Syria. Israel is number three. And you see on the map itself, that is the light-colored bay. I don't know, what is that? Uh, Whatever it is, cream-colored So you guys remember when um, under George W. Bush, Homeland Security after 9-11, they had different colors for the day for alerts to tell people the danger level. And Saturday Night Live had a skit about that. And they were doing like, you know, the color for today is bone. And, but the next day it's off white. <laughs> and then beige. <laughs> and <it> was, <laughs> they went through this whole list of things that you can't tell any difference. About all right. Anyway, I feel better. Um, and notice that the number three for Israel there uh, is at the top, and then kind of in the middle left, and then you got a larger section at the bottom. That's all. That's all Israel. But then within that area that is Israel, you've got some other spots uh, designated that that are to be called out. One of those is the. Fairly large one right in the middle there. Number five is the West Bank. So you hear a lot in the news and have for decades about the West Bank. And a lot of times about um, unrest going on in the West Bank. Well, there it is. And why the West Bank? The West Bank of what? Well, the Jordan River. So you see the Jordan River there. And that section is on the west side of the the Jordan River. So when you hear in the news, which we do hear often, about the West Bank, that's what it's talking about. The reason that there is unrest there often is because it's inhabited uh, primarily by Palestinians as opposed to Israelis. And so there will be uprisings from the West Bank every so often against the Israeli government. Because they have it occupied, you guys have heard the occupied territories. Heard that term? So the West Bank is one of the so-called uh, occupied territories. Uh, as is uh, the Golan Heights. Uh, if you look at number eight, I'm skipping up. I'm skipping here, but number eight up toward the top, where nine and ten are. So it's right next to Syria. Uh, the Golan Heights is one of the occupied territories It's number 8 if you look at the middle left a little bit where number one is just that little strip there the Gaza Strip so that's another one and what these are the reason that they're occupied territories is because uh, Israel was attacked Israel was attacked in 1967 Uh, it was attacked in 1973 so within seven years it was attacked twice uh, in 67, they were able to finish off their attackers in six days. So it's known as the Six-Day War. Uh, but then in 73, they're attacked again. And they, this time it took about three months. And they were on the, on the brink. Um, and it was, a, it was a very dangerous situation for world security. Uh, Russia was supplying uh, the attackers. We were supplying Israel and so everything that happened in the world in those days had a Cold War flavor to it between the US and Russia. Uh, but they did beat back the attackers and when they did they took some land. So as they beat Jordan back, because Jordan was one of the attackers, they took some property. And they've stayed there in the West Bank. So it's occupied. But they have said, you know what, we're not leaving because you guys attacked us, and we're not letting you do that again. And likewise, the Gaza Strip. Egypt was one of the attackers. So they kept not only the Gaza Strip, but there was a, there was a section that we'll see in a minute called the Suez between Israel and, and Egypt, the Suez Canal. And they occupied that, but uh, Israel gave that back to Egypt in a peace treaty. Uh, within the last few decades so and Israel and Egypt are actually formally at peace uh, with one another now and they gave that back but they've kept the West Bank and Gaza uh, and and Golan those are the those are the occupied territories All right, so we've covered several of these Uh, Jordan is the big green dark green spot number four to the right is Jordan Egypt is the lighter green to the left, lower left. That's number two, Egypt. I said Golan is number eight, Gaza number one. And then Haifa and Tel Aviv are cities. And in the middle, just above the middle number six, that yellow number six, is uh, Tel Aviv. And the red number seven is, is Haifa. So those are prominent cities in Israel. Jerusalem is the most prominent, so it's right there in the middle. You guys see that? Um, And and notice where Jerusalem is located. I mean, right right within the West Bank and and Israel. So you talk about a hot spot, right? And you've got all of these holy places there in Israel, and you've got the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's That's the golden dome that you see when you see an aerial shot of Jerusalem but it's a mosque and yet it's also the Temple Mount and you have uh, Jews from time to time who will go and seek to lay a cornerstone for the rebuilding of the, of the temple there which then excites the, the Muslims as you might imagine so it's a powder keg it's just an absolute powder keg uh, and it's all frankly because this is uh, where God's plan uh, for redemption originated and it's where it's going to culminate uh, as as well. So if you look on the backside, here's then a modern political map, not just of Israel itself, but then of the larger surrounding area. So you can barely read the font where some of the cities in Israel are listed. We saw Haifa and Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, Gaza Strip, all of that. Um, And then some of the countries there but here are some of the further out Middle Eastern uh, countries so the very top the first one is Iraq and Iraq is number five number five so number five is right in the middle of the map that kind of uh, orange I guess and number six in the middle of it is a dot so that's a city within Iraq and that would be Baghdad. you guys see Baghdad on the list? So that's number six. Hey, did we not give you a map? You want a map? You, or do you enjoy being lost? Like being lost? We'll give you a map. <laughs> <laughs> <We'll give you. laughs> Here's a map for you. <laughs> there you are. test me on it later. <laughs> And so Baghdad in Iraq, now if you were to go back and look at the old map of biblical times of that area of Iraq, that would be where Babylon is. That would be where Ur and Chaldee is located. It's where where Abraham came from, modern day Iraq. It's where Babylon uh, was. Actually, there's a city there still named Babylon. Saddam Hussein, you guys, remember him? Uh, Saddam Hussein wanted to rebuild the glory of the Babylonian Empire, and he actually had coins commemorated with with the image of Nebuchadnezzar on them uh, for that for that reason. So it's a whole fascinating you know area. Uh, so you've got Iraq is number five, uh, number six is Baghdad, uh, Iran is the next name on the list, that's number eight. On the right side, that large area. So Iraq and Iran are next to each other, as you can see. They went through a war of about, I don't know, 10 years, the Iraq-Iran War. You know, and we supplied, the US supplied arms to Iraq uh, to stave off Iran. Why were they trying to kill each other? Because, because Iran is uh, Shiite. Muslim and the Iraqs are Sunni uh, Muslims so it was a religious war and uh, they they went at it and it was uh, it was very a very deadly war and as happens you know uh, sometimes you have these unintended consequences we uh, supplied arms to Iraq and then Iraq ends up becoming a nemesis uh, for us same thing with Afghanistan we supplied arms to Afghanistan for them to stave off the Soviet Union back in the late 70s and early 80s. Remember Carter uh, as president in the late 70s. Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. The uh, Olympics, the Summer Olympics were going to be in Moscow in 1980. And we boycotted the Olympics. We didn't go at all because of the Soviet Union going into Afghanistan. And so instead of getting into a direct war with the Soviet Union, you know we let these uh, in, we let these uh, fighters in Afghanistan do it, and we gave them the arms. But in so doing, we end up arming the people that ultimately attacked us on 9/11, and then we end up going into Afghanistan, and we're fighting sometimes against people who are using the stuff we supplied against. It's just the craziest thing. Life in a fallen world is really weird, isn't it? So anyhow, uh, Iraq, Iran, then Saudi Arabia at the bottom that uh, yellow mustard kind of color number four, that's number four Saudi Arabia. Turkey is number three up at the top the purple Kuwait and remember we got into the desert storm uh, short conflict thankfully but it was because Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait which is neighboring to Iraq and that's that blue spot number nine I mentioned Suez and Egypt and Israel that is number two in the green over on the left Suez Canal so you see it that it's this uh, peace that's right between Israel and Egypt and Israel had occupied that like it has the other occupied territories but gave it back because Egypt uh, pledged to be at peace with Israel and that peace has held for several decades Qatar, sometimes pronounced Qatar, is number ten, and that's the little purple to the bottom right. Why do we care about Qatar? Uh, we have like an air force base, air force base there, <laughs> so we have like stuff everywhere. And you know, I'm not going to wax on foreign policy uh, here, but uh, the the U.S. is is the Roman Empire of, of modern times in the sense that peace such as it has been over the last century has been largely because the U.S. has had a presence all over the place and people are afraid to mess too much. And if and if we weren't there, then people can do whatever they do, whatever they want. So it's the way it was in the Roman Empire. They called it the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And so this has kind of been the Pax Americana, some some call it, the Peace of America in the the world. Tehran is number seven. We already saw Baghdad is number six. Tehran is number seven. That's in Iran. So that is the capital of Iran. Tehran is where our hostages were held uh, for about a year and a half in uh, 79 and 80, you may remember. And then Cairo, the capital of Egypt, is number one. And that's what is sur- modern-day Israel is all surrounded with. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination <laughs> to see how there could be a world conflagration, a, uh, a world war that would be centered there, given all the hostilities that that are there. So they're kept in check, but kept in check barely a lot of times. Alright, so that's the biblical world compared to the modern world. Why do we take some time to look at it compared to the modern world? Here's the big thing you want to get out of that and you would want to convey to somebody that you're going through this with. Namely, this stuff we're going to see is real. It happened in real places. These are not None of the names used in the Bible are fairy tale kinds of places. There's, there's real dirt and geography associated with what it says about where the Garden of Eden was and where Noah was and where Abraham was and all of that. These are real people, real places. This stuff really happened is the, is the idea. All right, on the next page you have an outline of the tabernacle, but we're not going to look at that. Now, let's get into the first several lessons then of trying to see God's story of redemption from, from the beginning. And it starts, of course, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, page 12. Page 12 and starts with the words, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created. So in, in, in its opening statement, the Bible addresses the most basic issue of human existence... By declaring that something or someone has always that the the something or someone who has always existed is God. Now, the something or someone who has always existed. So, why is it reasonable to assume that something or someone has always existed? And if you go through this with somebody, this is you know something that they may may well ask, and so you'll want to provide uh, some answer to that. Now, I've got good news for you. If you decide to go through this, use this material in the future, there is a leader's guide that goes with it that has uh, lots of suggestions for um, for answers to questions that might, might come up so you don't have to make it up uh, on your own. Uh, but that's one question that might come up. And uh, so I'm supposed to be doing this, aren't I? All right, now, come on. Now, the religious art thing... I'm not a big fan of, but that one's pretty cool. I kind of like that. <laughs> All right, and and that uh, is a Hebrew word there, uh, Elohim. That's one of the Hebrew names for God. And Hebrew goes from right to left. So the M sound is actually over on the left, and uh, and you only actually have consonants there. You only have you only have four consonants. That's the way Hebrew is. It's only consonants, no vowels. And so it's a consonantal language when you look in the Hebrew Bible it's just all consonants and yet if you see, if you see that representation enough in particular context you'll know how, it's, how we vocalize it so you don't need vowels because we know how to vocal. that's what vowels are for, vocalizing, how to pronounce so, and that's the reason we only need a handful of vowels, right? A-E-I-U, sometimes Y, I think it's A-E-I-O-U, thank you, thank you you know, there's always a grammar Nazi in the group. You are the grammar Nazi, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> she's told me that before, that she's the grammar Nazi. Yeah, A E I O U, sometimes Y. Okay. I know some people say sometimes Y, but. Mostly, what do you mean? Why is used. It's mostly used as a verb. I mean, as
1: a vowel. As a vowel.
0: Yeah, but, but not more than the others. When you say mostly Y, oh, okay. Because I was. I thought we were going to have to Revenant. get a new grammar Nazi. <laughs> A-E-I-O-U, sometimes Y, mostly Y, in fact, most of the time. Y. Uh, but they didn't have any. And they don't, you don't need any if every time you see that sequence of consonants in a particular context, you know how to pronounce it. But what happened was the um, Israelites were taken captive. And when they were taken captive uh, for 70 years and then they come back to the Holy Land, they've forgotten how to pronounce these things. And so they had to do something then with Holy Scripture to come up with how we're going to pronounce this stuff. And so they needed to put vowels in, but they didn't want to change the text. The text is sacred. So instead of putting letters in, they put what's called pointing Vowel pointing, and you can't hardly see it on there. Maybe you can in your book, um, but there is uh, there is there are points, sometimes in between, below, above, and they each have a a, si- a sound associated with them, and that's how they remembered how to how to pronounce stuff. All right, we're never going to get through this if I just keep talking <laughs> about uh, you know finer points of Hebrew vocalization and all of that. So why is it reasonable to assume that something or someone has always existed? It doesn't make sense to think that at some previous uh, time absolutely nothing existed and out of nothing and for no cause the universe began to exist, then later living beings spontaneously originated out of non-living matter. It takes an incredible amount of blind faith to believe that. It makes more sense to think that something or someone has always existed. Either a living being or non-living matter To believe in the eternality of either of these does in fact require faith. But it makes best sense to think that what has always existed is a living God who has the ability to create both non-living matter and other living beings. The opening verse of the Bible asserts that's indeed the reality of how the universe and life began. It does require faith to believe that. But as we go through this, we're going to see that that's confirmed by a lot of observable evidence as as well so which of these is true then in your books there B. Um, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth so explain the reasoning behind which of these is true the Bible begins with an attempt to prove the existence of God or the assumption that God exists which one is it in the beginning God God exists Okay, so, it assumes that God exists, doesn't, doesn't try to prove that God exists, interestingly. And the Bible will tell us later that this is because people are made by this God and were made by this God to know God. And so, even people who deny God actually have the ability to know Him, made in His image, all of that. Um, now, Atheists, if you're atheist long enough, you convince yourself that you really don't believe in God. But it takes some work <laughs> to get there. Uh, and so the Bible says that even those who, those who claim that there is no God are without excuse because He has made Himself known in creation, in our conscience, and, and so on. So the Bible begins with the assumption that, that God exists. And then see there a Psalm 90, Psalm number 90, says this. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are our God. So what does it mean that God is from everlasting to, to everlasting? So He's had no, right? he's had no beginning and he'll have no, he'll have no end. So the Bible is going to teach that we, human beings, are eternal in the sense that we have no end but we're not eternal in the absolute sense like God is because we've all had a beginning. But God has had neither beginning nor end. From everlasting to everlasting, you are. And then as you read through the Bible, we learn more and more about God, who He is and what He's like. At the bottom then of each of these sets of truths uh, in the Bible, you're going to see these attributes of God. And the authors of the material are encouraging us to think about how God is portrayed in these stories. So look at the bottom of pages 12 and 13. Put a mark beside each of the ways that God is portrayed in the events of these pages. And clearly, Almighty Creator is one of them, right? Supreme authority, you know? So at least those two so far, and there's no... We're not going to go through and, and check answers and all of that. But, um, but at, least those, at least those first two, and as we go through this, every two pages, every two lessons, you're going to have those to, to think about. Now, before we move on to the second lesson, um, this Genesis 1-1 and, and getting it right is, is crucial, and here's why it's, why it's crucial. I get to put that in there again. But here's why. So you start with uh, that very first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, But that's foundational to the very first chapter and God's creative work in that very first chapter in the six days of creation that we're going to see, which in turn sets the stage for the first 2,000 years of human history, 2,000. Genesis 1 through 11 is 2,000 years worth. Uh, The Bible covers 4,000 years of history, and the 2,000 of them are in uh, the first 11 chapters. And Genesis 1.1 sets the stage for all of that, and then for the whole book of Genesis, and then the entire Bible. So uh, the Christian life and worldview are founded on the Bible. The foundational book of the Bible is the very first one, Genesis. The foundation of Genesis is in those first 11 chapters. The foundation of that section is God's creation in chapter 1. The foundation of chapter 1 is the very first verse. And so the entire Christian life and worldview really rests on Genesis 1.1. Get it right. In the beginning, God. and God created the heavens and the earth. That is, God created everything. And so He is Almighty God, and He is the supreme authority over everything He created. All right, next lesson on page 13, creation of the earth. And you have the six days of creation in Genesis uh, chapter 1. So in its initial state, you see on page 13, what was the, the earth like? Well, it's, it's not, it's, it's unformed and unfilled is what it is. In fact, I have a book on my shelf by that title, uh, Unformed and Unfilled. So it's without shape, it's without form, and it doesn't have uh, any life on it as yet. It's in its initial state. So you, those are two good ways to think of it, I think. And then what does God do in verses 3 through 5? Well, he says, and so he creates by his word. So he's able to bring into existence by his command. And he says, let there be light. Uh, And he saw that it was good. And he calls the the light day, the darkness night. And throughout these opening couple of chapters of Genesis, where you have the the creation story, you have God naming stuff. And then you have God's uh, earthly king, humanity, Adam, naming stuff and the naming of things is an indication of authority over them and so God has authority over the light he has authority over the day uh, from from minute one and then on the second day of creation what uh, what happens God said let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters let it divide the waters from the waters and so God made the firmament Divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above it, and it was so. And God called that firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, just uh, quickly, and this would be in some notes for you if you were to go through it, but when it says heaven there, this is not the abode of God. This is not where you go when you, when you die. And one of the difficulties sometimes with material, published material, when they uh, use the Bible, notice that they don't quote the Bible in here. Um, and part of the reason is, is they, you have to pay royalties a lot of times to do that. And if you don't want to pay royalties, then you have to use the King James. So if you don't want to use the King James, you just say, look it up, which is what they're, what they're doing here. Okay, So the people who made these uh, slides for us, though, are using uh, the King James or the New King James. And it say, uses terms like firmament and actually says heaven there, which makes you think that this is you know, where you go when you die. But in actuality, um, it's referring to the sky. That God, took, that God took water and put it in the sky, we know that as clouds. So, uh, God has sky between, uh, that, that He also placed the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, you'll, see, you'll see later as well. So, what happened on the third day, it's what God created. He said, let there be, or, or He divided the waters Creating the clouds in the sky. And then on the fourth day, no, excuse me, I'm I'm on the third day, sorry about that. Third day, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. The gathering together of the waters he called the seas, and he saw that it was good. Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the, the third day. And so God gathered the waters under the, uh, under the sky on the surface of the earth together together, Uh, In such a way to allow the dry land to appear, he called the waters seas and the dry land uh, earth. God then called various types of vegetation into existence to perpetuate themselves through seeds. And so that's that kind of tortured language that you you read there about it uh, giving forth after its kind. Fourth day of creation... Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to be ruled uh, to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament, that would be the sky, to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. God saw it was good and that was the, the fourth day. So God created the earth's sun to provide light for daytime. It replaced what was apparently a temporary light source that God had made on the very first, on the very first day, created the moon to provide light for nighttime. And these lights were also intended to provide a way of marking seasons and, and years. And then the fifth of the sixth days. Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth, across the face of the firmament of the heavens. Again, that's the sky, birds in the sky. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. That's the fifth day. Now, I want you to I want you to notice verse 22, he blessed them and he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill and let birds multiply, okay? And I want you to see that because there'll be f- similar language used on day six, I uh, hear in a bit uh, with regard to humanity, but some extra language with regard to, with regard to human beings. God said let the earth bring forth living creature according to <clears throat> its kind cattle and creeping thing beast of the earth according to its kind it was so he made the beast of the earth according to its kind cattle according to its and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind and God saw that it was good Now I always have to comment on the uh so these are bad, this is better than the Adam and Eve are better than, than some. I mean at, at least at least the they've got dark hair and they look somewhat Middle Eastern. Okay? You know, usually they look like Ken and Barbie and you know, you know, the blonde haired blue-eyed or or something like that. So, you know, completely Americanized or or something. But that's not the uh that's not the deal here. Um, and so on uh, day six of creation, you had animals created, but uh, most important, you had humanity created. And that's what's on page 14 the creation of, of mankind. God said, let us, this is still day six, make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, the cattle over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, now, does this sound like what he said to uh, to the the animals, be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill, fill the earth, but then notice this other part, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you, given you humanity, every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was. And here's the first time he says this, very good. He keeps saying it's good, it's good, it's good, and now with humanity it is, it is very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So on page 13, compared to the other creatures God made, what was unique and special about the creation of the man and woman? Well, what would you say? Made in God's image. Unlike, no other creature made in God's image, right? And that they are given the responsibility and the privilege of ruling on God's behalf. So we are God's image bearers and we are to rule on, on His behalf. And then you come to chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, is an expansion of day six. So in Genesis chapter 1, you've got each of the six days of creation described as we've, as we've read. Day six is the creation of humanity. But then that one day, because it's so important, because it's the crowning achievement of God's creative activity, his image bearer is created, his vice regent on his world, for his world is, is created, humanity. And so God expands on that, on how humanity was created in chapter 2. So some people have looked at chapter 1 and chapter 2 and are like, how do those fit together are these two different accounts of creation. They're not two different accounts of creation. Chapter 2 is expanding on day 6, the creation of humanity. And verse 7 there says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So man is not only physical, man is spiritual as well. God created humanity in his image. God created him to rule on his behalf. And God has created us with these uh, two aspects to our being, that we are physical and we are spiritual as, as well. And so that's C on page 14. Additional facts we learn regarding the creation. The Lord planted this garden in Eden. He put the man whom he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you see that God made this this beautiful place. And it's every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food. That's what D is about on page 14. But God says, one thing you're not supposed to uh, do, took the man, put him in the garden to tend it and keep it. So work is not a result of sin. Work was actually something we were made to do before sin. We were made to work on behalf of God and work his world and tend it and, and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, uh, eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So uh, man can have freedom to do uh, whatever he wants, except the freedom to decide whatever he wants. (laughs) That is, he can't determine what's right and wrong. God's going to determine what's right and wrong. That's what's meant by the knowledge of good and evil. I'm the one who makes the rules, and it's going to have to remain that way. I give you all kinds of freedom, but you will never have the freedom to be me. And you remember when, now as we'll see, when they are tempted. The temptation is, hey, God's holding back because he knows in the day you eat of it, you shall be like God. So that was the appeal that Satan made to to the man and, and the woman. So what one thing, E, did God tell Adam not to do? And what did God say would happen? Can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, on that day you will die. So true or false? At this time, Adam and Eve were living in a condition of innocence. This is before they've they've disobeyed. Yeah, you know, it's true. You're going to have to come up with some word. Innocence is as good as any. You know, it's a phase we're not in now. How about that? (laughs) Prior to the fall, prior to the entrance of sin, prior to us rebelling against God as represented by the first uh, couple, then we were in this uh, innocent state and theoretically would have remained there uh, had had we not sinned. But the story goes on, page 15. And there's the fall of Lucifer. Uh, Verses 18 to 25 are about the creation of the woman and God presenting the woman to the man as a gift to him. So this is the first marriage, and God made marriage to be good, and marriage was good uh, until sin messed it up. Okay. All right. So now what happens after that, page 15? You've got the fall of Lucifer. Top of page 15. At some earlier time, Lucifer, originally a beautiful angel of God, led other angels in a failed rebellion against God and became known as Satan, the devil. Now you see the verses that are listed there Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. So Ezekiel 28 refers to. Uh, I'm quoting now, the anointed cherub that was in Eden. The anointed angel, cherubim. And you were in Eden, Ezekiel 28 says. So that's why many understand that to be a reference to Satan before he fell. Lucifer means light. And so an angel of light. And Ezekiel twenty. Eight refers to this angel that was in Eden and then Isaiah 14 actually uses the word Lucifer or son of the morning or light and talks about how he in pride said I will be like the Most High and I will ascend but then he is cast down cast down to earth so putting those two together that's where uh, many theologians get the idea then that uh, Satan was this uh, angel uh, made by God but one that rebelled against God and led a third of the angels in rebellion against God. So those angels are demons and uh, d- Satan the devil has then has demons. So that is what um, page 15 is saying. Read Ezekiel 28 uh, and Isaiah 14. I've told you the important part of what those say. Look at C, Matthew 25 and Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 that hell was prepared for the devil and his demons. All right, so, all right, now look, I've been beaten on the religious art. This one, this has some decent religious art. It's kind of Jehovah's Witness religious art. <laughs> these, these, these kind of look like the books the books that you used to see in the doctor's office when you were, right, when you were a kid. Those are all Jehovah's Witness books, by the way. But this one, come on now. I mean, this is this is I guess this is Lucifer doing a swan dive from heaven. Got wings, but apparently the wings aren't working, so he's just he's crashing down to he's crashing down to earth. That's the best they could come up with. But okay, there there it is. Uh, so, who do you think the devil's angels are? Those that are mentioned in Matthew twenty-five. That would be the demons. We don't know, bottom of page 15, exactly when Lucifer rebelled. It may have been much earlier, but certainly occurred before the following event, and that is the beginning of of human sin, because he's going to appear as the serpent. And there's um, Adam and Eve again. Adam looking kind of buff. Uh, you know. There. <laughs> so you know, whenever I see, whenever I see this religious art and Adam, you know, looking like you know the every man's man, I say to I say to Kim, I am never gonna look like that. that I say, hey, I say, I say, I'm never gonna look like that again. Is what, is what I tell her. Okay, and then you guys laugh. What do you mean? Yeah. All right, page page fourteen is that no sixteen the beginning of human sin, and that is in in chapter chapter three. Now keep in mind this phrase from the last book of the Bible. in fact, the uh, second to the last uh, chapter there are twenty two chapters in revelation. this is chapter 20 and it refers to the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and, and Satan. So the serpent idea and identifying the serpent with the devil and with Satan is important because the serpent is who shows up in Genesis chapter 3. Most of you are familiar with that. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said You shall not eat of every tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise... Because those other things are true about all the other fruit, right? Mm -hmm. That it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes. But this one had something additional. Desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam, what are you doing while your family is being destroyed by a tempter? You were the one, he was the one who was told. And he's the one who relayed to, to Eve, this is what we're supposed to do. This is how she knows, because he relayed it to her. But while this is happening, he's with her, and she's doing all the talking. I'll make no further comment about that. <laughs> but, but he's letting this happen. And so his family is being destroyed, and the family of humanity, as a result, is being destroyed as, as well. So this is monumental in its uh, calamity here. Gave some to her husband and he ate. And throughout the Bible, this then becomes known as whose sin? Whose sin? Adam's. Because Adam was supposed to be leading. So this is Adam's sin, even though Eve was obviously a very active and willing participant in the in the sin. So Genesis 3, 1 through 5, Satan appeared to Eve in the form of a serpent, misquoted God to make him seem to be unloving, denied that God could or would punish disobedience as he promised. You shall not surely die, he says. Suggested that God only gave the warning because he's selfish and jealous. So true or false, Satan wanted Eve to doubt that God is good, true to his promises and holy, absolutely true. And he still wants that uh, today. Genesis 3.6, what three factors motivated Eve to eat the fruit that that God had forbidden? The uh, tree was good for food, appealed to the desires of her flesh. The tree was pleasant to the eyes, so the desires of her eyes. And thirdly, the tree was desirable for her because it would make her wise in an earthly sort of way. So in a prideful desire to gain what she thought was godlike wisdom, she disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which the New Testament actually talks about in 1 John chapter 2, those three things. All three of them here. And then you have as we study the Bible E bottom of page 16, it's important to realize any act of disobedience against what God has commanded is called, is called sin. And so this is the beginning of sin in the, in the human race and all of the calamity that, that follows with it. And what follows with it is page 17, the origin of death. As you continue on in chapter 3. Did you guys notice, let me see here, let me go back here. Did you guys notice the, uh, so what's she eating there? It kind of looks like a pear-shaped thing, doesn't it? Which is good. I got to give them some extra points here, <laughs> because we always say that it was an apple. The Bible actually doesn't say; it just says it was a fruit. So, yeah, just get something other than an apple, just to throw people off. Okay? We don't know that it was a pear either, but we don't know it was an apple. So, I'm I'm glad they did something other than an apple. And uh, yeah, trouble for us. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So God calls out and says, where are you? Does God know where Adam is? (laughs) Right? God's setting this up. He's setting it up for Adam to have, uh, to have brought home to him that he is now hiding himself from the God with whom he used to have fellowship. I mean, they hear the Lord God walking. This is a sound they're familiar with. God would condescend to come and fellowship with them, but now they're hiding. And so now God's bringing that home. Adam, where where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Does God know this? Of course he does. And then the man said, and these are the two words, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So the woman. Yes, God, there's a problem here. And the problem is not me. The problem is the woman. He is deflecting, he's blame shifting, he's blaming the woman. But notice, notice carefully, the woman whom, you guys see the next part? Oh, but we know who made the woman. It's the woman you gave me. He's blaming God here. His relationship with his wife is being harmed because he blames her. But more important, his relationship with God has been harmed, and he's blaming God. This is the woman that you gave me. I did a survey, God, and from what I can tell, on the entire earth, there's only one living human woman, and you made her, and she's defective. So I'm giving her back to you, blaming the woman, blaming God, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done to the woman? The woman said, notice the first thing out of her mouth, the serpent. So Adam says to the woman, the woman says to the serpent, what nobody says is me. And if you ever do any biblical counseling, this is where you'll have to start. With whose fault is it? Not that, I don't mean that, I mean back here. Okay. Where you'll have to start is taking responsibility. And it's very, 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 very difficult for people to take responsibility. It's very difficult for your kids to take responsibility because it goes back to, to this. All right? So in the, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So the origin of, of death. Every culture would contain a mixture of these behavior motivators now as a result of this. You've got people that are guilt and shame kinds of cultures. Shame versus honor. Guilt versus innocence. Fear versus power. All of this goes back to the beginning. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he physically died. But God said, you are going to, and then it goes on to his descendants, they all lived so, you know, so many years and then they died. Right? And then in the New Testament, as through one man sin entered the world, see, Adam's getting the blame here, through one man, Sin entered the world, death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, do you see here that Adam was our representative? And so in Adam's sin, we sinned from, from God's, God's perspective. And so death now spreads to all people. The reason people die, the reason you die, the reason any of us die is because of that. So stay with me just for a second here. There's the promise of a Satan conqueror. And I'll actually do that starting next week because we are a few minutes past. Some of you got to go get kids. But I want to call your attention to page 17. Page 17 and A. Look back up at A if you would. The essence of death is separation. Three kinds of death result from sin. Physical death Adam experienced at age 930, 930. We all are going to experience death sometime uh, before 100, okay? But we're all going to see physical death unless the Lord returns first. And the Bible teaches that death, when you think of death, it is this, it is separation. And there are three kinds. Spiritual death is separation of the individual from God. That's what spiritual death is. And when when the Bible said to Adam and Eve, when God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die, they were separated from God in that moment. They died spiritually. And that's why the hiding and all of that. They're now separated from God. Spiritual death is separation of the individual from God. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. And eternal death, is the separation of the individual from God forever. Everybody comes into the world spiritually dead. Everybody who comes into the world spiritually dead will physically die. And whether or not we receive Jesus Christ as Savior will determine whether or not we experience eternal death forever. All right, we'll pick it up there next week.